Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us and that you would challenge us, that you would fill us, that you would be near us, and that you would change us. Help us follow you better today and every day. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. It was a bitterly cold day in a western city. A small boy stood shivering on a steel grate in the sidewalk. His clothes were thin and tattered. A woman, appropriately dressed for the weather, stopped and engaged the youngster in conversation. He was indeed a child of the street. He had nothing. But the compassionate stranger took him to a clothing store and out fitted him from head to foot, including a cap and a scarf and gloves and a coat and everything else he could need. The lad was filled with joy, filled with gratitude. He couldn't thank her enough. As they were saying their goodbyes and walking in opposite directions, the elated boy turned back to ask, are you God's mother? And the gentle woman answered, oh, oh no, I'm just a child of God. Whereupon the smiling lad remarked, I knew you were related. I knew you were related. I wonder if that could ever be said of us. I mean, it strikes me that if someone were to be adopted into, into our family, while they would definitely have a huge impact on our family, the same should be true the other way as well. As I would hope that they would take on uh, the beliefs and behaviors, the, the patterns and the practices, the attitudes and actions of our family. Not to mention our quirks and our weird sense of humor and some of the other things as well. I mean, it goes, they both happen there. But, but after a time, people would know that they are related to us because of who they are, because of how they live. But of course, this becomes much more interesting when we then start to talk about being members of the family of God. How do members of the family of God live? What do they act like? How are they different? And, and more to the point, is that who we are becoming? In thinking about this, if I had to put a word to it, if I had to kind of choose a word to describe the family of God, I would choose probably my favorite of Hebrew words. And it's the word chesed. We're going to try and say that. Chesed. Ready? Like that. It's hard. You're going to have to like, it's like you just had a lot of coffee and allergies. There's a sound at the beginning. But it's chesed. That was better. You're still very English, but... but. We can work on that too. Uh, in the Bible, this word chesed is translated as kindness. It's translated as love. Some translations say loving kindness. But it's more than that too. I want to kind of paint a picture of this for you. It's God's faithful, relentless, overflowing love. 
It's the, the steadfast, unswerving, committed love of God. It is God's covenantal love lived out, made manifest. As one pastor once put it, Hesed is to the Old Testament what agape love is to the New Testament. Agape is a Greek word. Hesed is a Hebrew word, so those, those go differently. But it's kind of the, that same big love of agape love. Hesed is the decisive, steadfast, persistent, enduring, abundant, unfailing, powerful, loyal, everlasting, and personal expression of God's covenantal commitment to His people. If I were looking for a way to describe who we are becoming as members of God's household, that would be it. This is what it looks like to be a member of God's family. And we know that because that's who Jesus is. And you won't be surprised when I tell you that that word will be one of our main themes in our passage today. But before we get there, I just want to make sure we all know where we are. Today we are coming to the end of our Lenten series looking at the person of David. Uh, and as we've been talking about, David was known as a man after God's own heart. And as we've been talking about, we, we, we're kind of looking at that in two different directions. One is David's heart is aligned with God's heart, but then also David's heart is aimed at God's heart. And both of those pieces, I think, are important. David's heart is aligned with God's heart in that it's kind of built the same way. He feels the same things. He's passionate about the same purposes. But then David's heart is also aimed at God's heart. He loves God, longs for God, follows after God. And as we think about both of these, we recognize that our hearts could probably be a little bit more aligned with and aimed towards God's heart. But we may need to reset, even reorder our loves a little bit more such that God would carry a greater gravitational pull for our hearts. And so as we engage all of this today, I invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. While you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of context here, uh, which happened earlier in our story but will be relevant for today. Because importantly, and we haven't talked much about this, David has a best friend. His name's Jonathan. Now, it's, it's a strange friendship in that at the beginning, it started out easily enough. Jonathan is King Saul's son. And so at the beginning, this was an easy friendship. David was working for Saul. Jonathan was the prince, Saul's son. They, they just kind of found each other. But soon it became clear that Saul's reign was coming to an end and that it would actually be David who would ascend to the throne. And yet, because of their deep and abiding friendship, Jonathan seems not just to know this, but he's 100% for this. Jonathan is David's biggest fan. And therefore, at several points within their friendship, they make covenants with each other, promising that they'll have each other's back, promising that they'll be there for the other, promising that David would one day be king, and promising that if anything should ever happen to one of them, the other would take care of their family. 
Well, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, King Saul ultimately died in battle. Jonathan ended up dying in the same battle. One of Saul's other sons quickly and briefly secures the throne of Israel. David claims the throne of Judah. Eventually, the other son of Saul is killed, and David finally comes into power. He unites the kingdoms. He conquers Jerusalem. He establishes a capital. He moves the Ark of the Covenant in, which finally brings us to our passage. But as I read, I want you to look for the word kindness, because that word is our word chesed. I'm going to start saying it in a little more English, because it's going to be a problem for my throat. Hesed is how we're going to say it from now on, but that's wrong, but that's how it's going to go. Uh, so 2 Samuel chapter 9, look for the word kindness. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? For Jonathan's sake. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Seba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant, that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Amen. At first glance, this is an odd story and an even stranger Easter story. But if you hold on for a minute, you will see that this is the Easter story. As we look back at our passage, we see David being the kind of person, the kind of king that we've always hoped he would be. As our story picks up, David has enjoyed some success. He's consolidated his power. He's secured his borders, at which point it's time to, to take a look at the old to-do list and see what else is on there. 
I mean, Philistines, check. Jerusalem, check. What, what else is on my list? And he remembers he made a promise to Jonathan to look after him and his family. So he has a search made for anyone that he can show this kindness to, this, this hesed to. They begin a search, and they come across Saul's servant and kind of estate manager, Ziba, hoping that if anyone knows what has happened to anyone in Saul's family, it would be this guy. Ziba tells him that Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, which is as fun to say as it sounds, and, and David doesn't waste any time. He sends for him at once. When Mephibosheth finally is brought before the king, he is understandably terrified. And that makes sense. First, because it would be easy to see Mephibosheth as a threat. Generally, throughout history, the first thing that someone does when taking power is to completely eliminate anyone from the former dynasty so that there's no one less left to focus any opposition on. Uh, if, if you don't like how David is leading, if things were better for us during Saul's reign, if we're just generally not happy with how things are, then the easiest place to center our discontent is on someone from the last dynasty. Things were better when they were in charge. Plus, they already have name recognition. They already have the right training. They already have the right pedigree, not to mention they also have a pretty legitimate claim to the throne. I am the son or daughter or grandchild of the former king, and therefore I actually am the rightful successor. That's my throne that was stolen by this, this traitor, this upstart David. So join my cause and back me up as we try and retake my throne. So in many ways, Mephibosheth's life should be forfeit. Just that he lives is a threat to David's reign. But then in addition to that, Mephibosheth is also probably afraid because he's simply helpless before David. Our passage reveals that Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. When King Saul's dynasty was crumbling apart, the servants, obviously because of this whole, they tend to get rid of the people who were on Saul's side, the servants all flee. They run from the palace. And in the process, a very young Mephibosheth is accidentally dropped by his nurse. And he breaks his, his feet, his ankles, his legs, we're not sure. Worse still, they don't heal right. Worse still, they all flee into exile. And he becomes completely at the mercy of the people caring for him. Because, of course, to be lame at that time was to be both helpless and hopeless. And so it makes sense that he's afraid to come before David. Mephibosheth is both a threat and powerless. And since David is still kind of in the process of consolidating his power, let's just recognize Mephibosheth is a loose end that is very easy to tie up. But that's not what David does. That, that's not how David leads. That's not how David's kingdom comes. Instead, David extends hesed. David restores his fortune. David redeems his life. David gives him a permanent place at his table like a son, which is shocking and surprising and yet almost 
an expected picture of what hesed, loving kindness, looks like. But what does all this mean for us, especially in light of today being Easter? And I think the answer to the question is everything. David has experienced God's hesed, and David expresses that same hesed to Mephibosheth. In the same way, we experience God's hesed through Jesus and then are invited, even called, to become that same kind of people as well, just like David. What's more, I think we can come to understand this in several different and distinct ways, almost like different facets of this story. And so, as we turn this story a little bit, I want us to recognize how David and David's kingdom has come near to Mephibosheth in blessing. And then I want us to see how we can watch David redeem and restore Mephibosheth. And then one more turn, I want us finally, and maybe most powerfully, to witness how David adopts Mephibosheth, giving him a forever place at his table. And so I want us to work back through those as we try and tie all of this together and try and figure out who God is making us to be. And so again, a kingdom come, a redemption, and an adoption. We begin with a kingdom come. We see this most notably as David's new kingdom comes near Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is far away, he's in hiding, he's in exile, and clearly there could be several different kinds of kingdom that would then pursue a member of Saul's household. Most of them would end up being very bad for Saul's household. But, but David's kingdom is different. As David's kingdom moves towards Mephibosheth, he searches him out, comes near him in order to bless him, in order to bestow, in order to show loving kindness. And we see this even when David first comes near. Don't be afraid. How many times do we hear that in Scripture? Don't be afraid. Because, of course, we recognize Mephibosheth should be afraid. But you see, David's kingdom is different because David has experienced God's kingdom. David has experienced God's presence. David has experienced God's nearness. In many ways, David is living in God's kingdom as now Mephibosheth is invited to live in David's kingdom. But it's because of this that David is able to live differently than most would expect. You'll notice, too, that Mephibosheth here has a choice. He could have not acknowledged David's reign. He could not believe that David's kingdom has come. He could not show up, simply stayed in exile, which may have led to a much different story. But instead, Mephibosheth is ushered into a new way of life, a new kind of life, a new experience of life in David's kingdom. Come. And on this Easter Sunday, we also recognize that the same is true of us. Because, of course, the good news that we are reminded of today is that God has come near. 
that God wanted to be with us so much that He came down, that He conquered death, that He now reigns forever such that His kingdom has and is coming. God has moved near to you. God is available now in a new way to you. God is at work in and around us. God is here. Which then also is an invitation to live into this new and different and distinct kingdom here and now. No longer our kingdom, but His. And for us, the question is the same as for Mephibosheth. Will we choose to recognize that God is now here? Will we choose to live in this new kingdom come? Will we choose to follow the king? But wait, there's more. Because we also see how David redeems and restores Mephibosheth. Remember, Mephibosheth's life was basically forfeit. He's at the mercy of the people around him, and he's at best a threat to the throne. So David is well within his rights to simply get rid of him. When Mephibosheth refers to himself as a dead dog, he's probably trying to curry some favor, but he's also not far off. But again, David's hesed is almost overwhelming here. He rescues Mephibosheth from his fate. He restores his fortune. He redeems his future. David provides for not just his care, but so much more. Again, we see David extending blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But of course, again, this is what David has experienced. This has happened time and time and time again. Even in the brief stories that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, God rescued David from the hand of Goliath. God rescued David from the hand of the Philistines. God rescued David from the hand of King Saul. And even in those, God redeems David again and again when he should have been dead, when he was trapped, when he was alone, when he was outnumbered. And therefore, we are not surprised to find David extending that same kind of rescue, of redeeming, to Mephibosheth. That said, you can almost hear the echoes, can't you, of Easter. As we remember the lengths that Jesus went to for our rescue, our redemption. We had nothing to commend ourselves to Him. We had nothing to justify ourselves, nothing we could use to pay our own way, nothing that made us worthy or deserving. And yet it was precisely at this point that Jesus died for us, forgiving our sin, restoring and rescuing and redeeming our lives. But again, then there's this invitation set there as well, inviting us into that same kind of work. The assurance of pardon a little bit ago, the ministry of reconciliation becomes ours inviting us to do the work of rescue and restoring, inviting us to sacrificially love like He has loved us. Not because they are worthy, not because they deserve it, not because they will ever earn it, but because of who He's making us into, because of who He is.
And therefore, he invites us to sacrificially love the stranger, sacrificially love the foreigner, sacrificially love the outcast, sacrificially love the hurting, sacrificially love the challenged, sacrificially love the lonely, sacrificially love the dying, because that's what Jesus did for us. But wait, let's turn it one more time. As we come at last to this idea of adoption, this may be the most surprising part of this story. Sure, sure, David finds Mephibosheth and even redeems him. That's amazing. That's awesome. If David only did that, he would be a hero. That's more than good enough. But that's not where Hesed stops. Instead, he gives Mephibosheth a permanent place at his table like one of his sons. This cripple, this nobody, this stranger, this opponent, this threat becomes like a son. Think about that. This is not the kind of person that you want representing you. This isn't the kind of person you want to associate with. This isn't the kind of person you want to give that kind of prestige to. And yet David's hesed powerfully works as it's shown as he brings Mephibosheth in, adopting him. Then again, this is sort of what God did for David. I mean, think all the way back. Samuel was on his way to go anoint the new king, and, and David's family's all there, and David's dad's there, and he gets all the sons together, and Samuel goes through the whole list of sons. He's like, uh, this isn't, these aren't the, is the, are these your only sons? And, and David's dad's answer is, yeah. Wait, no, there's another one. He's out in the field. David wasn't remarkable enough for his family to include him when they were meeting with Sam, when Samuel says, go get all your sons. David was easy to overlook. David certainly didn't seem like the right candidate for the job until God chose him, picked him, adopted him, and then everything changed. Even more remarkably, God chose David again and again and again throughout the story. Not always seeming to be the best choice, and yet when God chose him, things changed. And then God moved even more powerfully to bring David literally into the very family of God as one of David's distant relatives gets named Jesus. And it's the same Jesus who dies on a cross and three days later is resurrected, conquering death and bringing new life. But in this, we also are told that it's through this that God then adopts us, you, into the family of God. Because of what Jesus has done, we become members of His family, heirs of the promise siblings with Jesus. It would have been remarkable and life-changing if He only had forgiven us. 
that would be good news. That would be something to talk about. But God's hesed does so much more than that. It only comes to completion as we are brought into the very family of God. Which again, gives us a little bit of a choice here at the end. Do we choose to live into this adoption? Do we live like we're in this new family? Do we follow and take after our big brother? And what does that even look like? It looks like Hesed. Intentional, covenantal, loving kindness. It looks like Jesus. And as we become more and more like Him, it's easier to conclude, I knew they were related. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You on this Easter Sunday for who You are and for all that You've done. We thank You for the good news that You have moved near that the kingdom of God is here and that we are changed as we live in this new kingdom. We thank you for the good news that we are redeemed, that you rescued us from the state we were in. We thank you for the even better news that you have adopted us into the very family of God, that we, like Mephibosheth, get a seat at your table forever that you want us to be with you, that you always have. So, Lord God, we ask that you would help us follow you, that you would help us on our path to discipleship, that we might become more and more and more like our big brother, the one who loves big, the one who shows hesed sacrificially all the way to a cross, and yet also resurrected. Lord, work in us this new kind of life as well. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.